Hello, muting.
I can take this off up here. Welcome, Welcome to the Washington, Washington Ethical Society. Society. I am Karen Schofield-Lego. My pronouns are her and her, short for person, and I am the officiant today. Welcome to everyone to our hybrid platform, whether you are here in the hall, watching now on Zoom, or watching later in a recording uh, through Facebook or YouTube. It is really great to have you with us. We are one community unified across time and space as we gather to affirm our values and commit to a better world. If you're on Zoom, please check the chat for a welcome from today's Zoom chat usher, Judy Myers, and tips like how to use the closed captioning feature. Here in the hall, we have assisted listening devices available, and you can simply check with the sound team at the back for more information on those. In-person visitors, please stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Macy Thomas. Online visitors, that's all of you. Whether you're watching today or tuning in later, we invite you to send an email to Maceo at maceot at ethicalsociety.org or to fill out a connection form, which you can find at tiny.cc slash westconnects. I'll now read a few of the greetings that folks have written in the chat. And online friends, while I'm doing that, you might want to get a candle to light during our candle lighting. Let's see, our chat says, Laura Scuglio says, good morning, as does Sarah Morris. And let's see. Trish Wiles says, good morning, Wes. I think the topic is so important. Judy says, hello, all. Adam Goldberg says, good morning to everyone at Wes and watching online. Shirley Storm says, good morning, Wes. And Sue Smith says, good morning, all. We are indeed delighted to have folks near and far and across time. Oops, let's see, I'm going to get the tablet doing this in here. So, our opening words this morning are from the Reverend Denise Cauley, who writes, love our earth, take action to consume less, use less energy, respect water, and be cooperative, collaborative, and creative community, like the moss and the mushrooms. Our children's lives depend on us. Our opening song this morning is Big Rock Candy Mountain, performed by Dr. Josh Turknett. One evening 
the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning down a track came a hobo hiking and he said boys i'm not turning i'm heading for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountain so come with me you'll go and see the big rock candy mountain in the big rock candy mountain there's a land that's fair and bright where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day on the birds and the peas and the cigarette trees the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains in the big rock candy mountains all the cops have wooden legs and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth and the hens lay softball eggs Farmers' trees are full of fruit and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the winds don't blow in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. adopted slightly more helpful behaviors perhaps since that song was written but nonetheless this spirit is well appreciated <laughs> welcome once again each week we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values and if you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose you can sign up at tiny.cc readsop today's reader is Jeff Mehal, a longtime member and our sort of resident punster, if you will. And so, Jeff, the podium is yours. Statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other throughout life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. 
Thanks, Jeff. And you can all see why Jeff is also a very uh, active part of our celebration performances because he's got a great voice for it. As Jeff lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Today, our guest speaker, the Reverend Dr. Gregory C. Caro Boyd, has a story to share. I am unmuted and I am so glad I, I saw you entering. So I, I do know those of you who are in the hall, it is good to see you at least the back of your heads. And it is also wonderful to be joining with everyone who is joining with us online or at some point in the future. So I have a story from you that comes from my colleague, uh, the Reverend Martha Dallas, and she helps us talk about uh, teacher Jesus, um, he said a lot of different things in his time. And teacher Jesus is a person, uh, a real person who existed in the past that many people believe had a special spiritual connection to the divine that some people call God. He said a lot of different things. And I, I wanna focus on one of the stranger things he said one time. He, he once said in the context of understanding how we can all do more justice, how we could all be more fair, how we could all attain the world that we're really looking for, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. I'm not entirely sure what's meant by that. And as a matter of fact, generations of scholarship aren't precisely clear on what that means either. But I think we can play with at least one interpretation of that. And that's what it might feel like to be first. All right, so let's just take a moment. And I, in a second, I'm going to invite you to turn to a neighbor if you're in the hall, if you're at home uh, and you're with your family, I'm gonna ask you to turn to the folks uh, that are with you. If you're all alone, you can use the chat pod, but wait for a second, I'll tell you when to enter something. Think about, think about what it means to feel first. What's it feel like to, to be best? to be number one, to come out on top? What does it feel like to have the most? Think about what these things feel like. Okay, if you're in the hall or with your family at home, go ahead and turn to someone and talk about what it feels like to be first. If you're with us online, go ahead and start typing in chat pod. And just a couple more seconds. Wrap up your thoughts.
okay, now let's focus on what it might feel like to be last. What's that feel like? How does it feel to be the worst? To be on the bottom? To have the least? To hardly have anything or perhaps just crumbs or nothing? Think about what does it feel like to be last? Thinking first. Go ahead and turn to a partner or to your family members. Those of you online, you can put some things in the chat pod. So let's wrap up your thoughts. Right, and we're back. So thank you, thank you all for sharing with one another. Thank you for those who are on the chat. I got to see some of those uh, responses for feeling first. We had a feeling of pride. Uh, we, we had a feeling that it was really comfortable, um, that we're powerful. Sometimes that it, we feel too powerful even. Uh, it, it can be a little bit scary. But when we feel last, it can be discouraging, like we're um, not smart enough and we're, we're on the bottom, that we're, we're broke, we're sad, we're lonely. And so since we understand these feelings, we know that we can make differences in the way we interact with ourselves, with one another, and the whole world. When we get a little bit closer to these feelings, when we shift ways so that people who feel like they're on the bottom, maybe often or a whole bunch, some even all the time, get to experience that, that power, that joy, that comfort, that ease that comes with those who are feeling like they're on top all the time, and the people who feel like they're always first get the experience of not always being first, maybe even volunteer not to always be first. We can begin to act differently and change our world. We can begin to construct a more just world. And so again, while we're not quite sure what teacher Jesus meant about what it means that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. At least one understanding of it is that when we make sure that people who feel on the bottom a lot get more opportunities and we change ways that the world is operating to help those folks, we can get closer to justice, we can get closer to freedom and we can make more joy. Thank you, Greg, for illuminating that perspective on justice. Let's enter now into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of young people who are making this shift from the leisure of summer to the work of the school year, and probably the households that are shifting gears as well. 
As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion to those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. You may begin by taking a deep breath and releasing it. Adjust your posture so that your body can be at ease. Let your thoughts still Close your eyes or soften your gaze and breathe. Without getting all wound up again, take a high level view of work. What does that call to mind for you? Is it the work of your body, or your mind, or your heart? Take another deep breath. Do you take satisfaction from your accomplishments? Or do you struggle to find meaningful work? Perhaps work, formal employment is in your rearview mirror. If a wage wasn't necessary, would you keep at your work or give it up for something else? How does your work contribute to your community? And remember that rest is also part of the work of change. So take a breath, let it out, and we continue our meditation in silence and the music that follows.
is a hammer to the captain Take this hammer Care to the captain Take this hammer Care to the captain Tell him I'm gone Tell him I'm gone I'm running If he asks you What's I running If he asks you Was I running Tell him I was flying Tell him I was flying Captain, take this hammer. Head to the captain. Would you take my hammer? Head to the captain. Tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. from a piece called Labor Day Meditation by Dustin Wax. Our forebears in the labor movement worked hard to make clear separations between our working lives and our personal lives. Yet today's workers struggle to find time for family, personal health and fitness, education, hobbies, and other interests. 
and employers are by large unmoved by such concerns. The lack of time to physically and mentally recuperate leaves us unhappy, burnt out, and subject to illness. Finding a healthy balance between our working selves and our personal selves has become a crucial concern for working people, whatever their field. Karl Marx, who knew a thing or two about working lives, regardless of what you think of his politics, wrote that workers who invest ever-increasing increasing portions of their identities in the things they produce for someone else's profit turn to consumerism in a vain attempt to recapture the pieces of themselves they've lost. But many of us have found the rewards of consumption and accumulation to be empty and unfulfilling and seek ways to disengage ourselves from the never-ending cycle of buying, displaying, and ultimately storing or discarding objects of questionable value. We want to be more engaged with our communities and the social problems that face them. We want to develop our talents, and we want to reach out to those around us in more meaningful ways. Yet we find that we are increasingly isolated from our neighbors and fearful of the communities in which our children go to school. We distrust both the businesses we patronize and the government that is supposed to protect us. Although some lucky few manage to build careers around their callings, for most of us, especially those with families to support, this simply is not possible. Just putting food on the table is, alas, a daily struggle for millions of American households. So how else can we cultivate meaningfulness in our lives? And how can we share it with others? I believe that our guest speaker has some ideas about this. The Reverend Dr. Gregory C. Caraboyd is a master credentialed religious educator. He serves Chalice Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Escondido, California as sabbatical minister. Greg loves to dance and to spend time with the special young people in his life. He also works as a director of adult learning and program evaluation for More Than Sex Ed, a greater LA-based sexuality education collective that brings our whole lives, that's the UUA and United Church of Christ comprehensive sexuality education curriculum that we also use here at WES, to schools, homeschool groups, and the greater community. Greg, thank you so much for being with us in our hybrid platform setup, and we look forward to hearing from you this morning. I'm still so glad to be here and talk to you about something that I think is uh, important uh, and special for all of us, what, what labor is. And I'm not going to make a big distinction between labor and work here, that there is a, a slight nuance there, uh, and we can have that conversation a different day. That, that's a conversation for a different sermon. But there is a problem with labor. Uh, namely, that we expect that we have to do it. I think that the profit of mid-20th century Black politics, and for all of us, James Baldwin has some important information to share with us about that, and that what he shared is a groundwork for helping us all get free together. 
So let's let's start with the the problem with labor here here in the U.S. One of the issues that we have with labor is it comes to us as a cultural value. When when we think about what messages about labor we've received, it is impossible in our actual geographic, in our historical, and even in our socio-political context not to acknowledge the existence of the Protestant work ethic. These are messages that go all the way back from the earliest settling of Western Europeans on these lands that belong and continue to belong to someone else. They were somewhat obsessed with the idea of works righteousness, that uh, that we somehow do better if we're actually doing things in the world, that the, the only way to prove that you're worthy of being saved itself is actually to go out and demonstrate it. Unitarian Universalists aren't too separate from this. After all, the, the Puritans eventually became the Congregationalists, which gave us the framework to become the United Church of Christ, the Unitarian Universalist Association, and some other uh, manifestations of congregational worshiping bodies. We, we also sometimes have said deeds, not creeds, which again, encourages us to do a lot of work rather than just to be ourselves, rather than to engage in leisure as something that is righteous in and of itself. Another issue with labor in particular is that it encourages us to be stuck where we are. It's really difficult to do enough labor to get into a different social echelon. It is really difficult to do enough labor to feel like if you're no longer doing that labor, you're still achieving your goals. To this end, even President Biden said just this Thursday uh, with a reception at the Democratic National Committee, he had him over to the White House. And I said I was. The second reason I was running, he says, I wanted to restore the middle class, the backbone of the country. You know, when the middle class does well, the wealthy do very well, and the poor have a way up, and there's some, some stability. Now, the fight, despite the fact that that statement is simply not true, or we, we know that there is limited social mobility, no matter how we parse this thing, who wants to be the fodder as the middle class for the wealthy doing very well and the poor thinking that maybe, maybe I can have what it's like to be in the middle someday? That is not in line with our wildest aspirations for who we can be and who we need to be in this time and in this place. And so one of the issues with labor is that it designs itself as being the only way that things are. It creates some, some stability, as the president says, uh, which is shorthand for maintains the status quo where we keep doing things the way they have been done and hopefully the way that the elite, the wealthiest, the people who are in charge believe things should continue. And I think we've talked about this a lot so far in our songs and in our readings today. Another issue with labor is that there is no rest. There's no rest in 
in a labor-based reality. It creates things like we have to manage time off. Uh, um, I can't see your responses, but you know how many of us work for a company or have worked for a company that gives us a certain amount of time off and yet we're not allowed to take it when we want. It, it's our benefit, but there, there are blackout periods or there's a manager in charge of us that says we can't take three weeks off, although we have three weeks available as a benefit, or we can't take three weeks when we want to take that three weeks because it would create some type of industry issue. I don't really know what my need for rest has to do with the effective management of a company. I think that perhaps we need to create better ways to make sure that people get the rest they need. We don't always know precisely when and how much we will need. It also creates this issue because there is no room for rest in a labor-based reality, a fear of taking time off. I do not possess the biological capabilities to bring new life into this world, but I know of stories from time immemorial about women and others who do have that ability having to balance, what am I going to do in terms of my career? When is the right time to have a child or to start having a child? Social realities that many other people who do not possess those biological tools seldom have to worry about, or if they do, the social consequences simply aren't the same. It is a boon if someone who does not possess those abilities sometimes wants to make sure that they can support a partner or partners who do. It is not always uh, seen as socially acceptable. Why, why would you want to do that now? Uh, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to do the things that you want. It's going to set you back innumerable years in terms of your career aspirations. There's no place for rest whether that's for creating our families or going on vacation, it always creates a sub-understanding that somehow, somehow, we're just being unproductive. Now, the fear of being unproductive is something I definitely understand as a millennial. We are the ones who invented the idea of grind culture. Now, there's nothing new about the hustle. We just gave it a new term. But for so often, for so long, especially in my early 20s, and when we see the emergence of the gig economy in its current iteration, the idea that you would have three or four jobs or balancing multiple projects at a time as opposed to a career in, in this way, working more than we might uh, do if we were actually employed by only one or two places, only one or to employers, there's no rest. There's no rest when that next Uber ride is the difference between you making rent and not having enough. As a side note, I always thought it was funny, the concept of late fees. It's so fascinating to think about the idea that if you don't have money now, somehow you'll have more money later, and that's going to make you uh, be more mindful of how you can go about your ways of doing things, your ways of being in community. Now, again, that connects to this idea of grind culture because there is no rest when you're also always doing the emotional 
labor of thinking about how am I going to pay the next bill? What does it mean to be in this much debt? What is good debt? And how do banks even account for negative money? I didn't know negative money existed. I digress. So let's talk about what Baldwin has to say about labor. He is most powerfully attributed with saying something akin to, darling, I've told you several times, I have no dream job. I do not dream of labor. This, this saying is probably apocryphal. In my many weeks of preparing to deliver this message, I have not been able to find anywhere that he actually said those words. What most sources point me back to is uh, a debate of sorts that he had in 1965 while being, uh, it was recorded and broadcast from Cambridge University. He, he was speaking with uh, a different scholar about what the nature of the American dream is and the distortion that it holds for Black Americans in particular. He sets up a construct where we have to understand that in the American dream, there are people who are paying for the American dream, as well as those who have failed to achieve it. And he most powerfully points to the anti-Black nature of this idea, that when you look around uh, the world that we have now that is constructed on anti-Black racism and indigenous erasure, we, we cannot deny that if someone tells us it's true in general, white people are doing much, much, much better than peoples of color all around the world. And it is hard to get distance from, well, that must be the natural and ordained reality of the world as it should be. And so this creates this reinforcing pattern where it is appropriate to continue to discard, he quotes, one-ninth of the U.S. population. There are slightly more Black people uh, now than there were back then. We're about 13% of the population. It creates the structure where, of course, that makes sense. We're just failing to live out what is obviously doable, what is obviously attainable, what is obviously great. But to accept this reality, this causes us to have to rely on some ridiculously unique racist tropes, namely that my people were stolen from an entire different continent and created the conditions by which many white peoples have been able to succeed, by which many white peoples have been able to construct generational wealth. And in the process, they labeled us lazy, even though we were the backbone of the free labor economy that allowed them to amass such great wealth that allows certain descendants of those folks who originally stole my people to continue to amass even greater wealth. At the end of his conversation, he says something uh, that just stuck out to me that I had to share. He's quoting Bobby Kennedy, this is 1965 now, remember, who says in, in 40 years, and this is Baldwin's paraphrase, if you're good, 
we may let you become president. Bobby Kennedy was talking about the reality that perhaps in 40 years, we might have a black president. We benefit from hindsight and, and no, obviously it took a little bit longer than that 40 year period, but we did eventually have a black president and it's always difficult to be the only or the first. Uh, no one who is the only or the first is ever going to be able to truly live out the realities of all that the power in that position or those positions can hold. But what he's pointing to is after 400 years, now nearly 500 years, somehow we Black people still have not arrived. But various people, various white communities, very el various elite communities that are wealthy can simply have at it. And that's not fair, that, that is the inversion of the logic that labor would have us believe. That people who have demonstrated over and over again just how valuable our labor is can continue to be discarded while folks who simply claim to have labored enough can succeed. And so the only option remaining is that we all get free together. And part of what Baldwin tells us, part of the way that Baldwin frames the social reality that he is trying to critique is deeply informed by his identity as a Black man, by his complex sexuality. Uh, we, we believe he was queer. We don't quite know. Um, it, it is more likely than not. We know that he definitely had relationships with some women. Uh, we know that his own analysis of his sexuality and his masculinity point to an awareness uh, that perhaps uh, the heterosexist norms that were ruining the day then and now uh, were not quite uh, holding true for him. And so we have to contend with the intersectionality, the social location that those identities bring him. Now, a quick uh, overview of intersectionality. I'm sure many of you have heard this term. Kimberly Crenshaw writing in 1989 about the reality that sometimes Black women are, that Black women are oppressed dually on the basis of being Black and a woman, not only Black and not only a woman. She gives us the term of social location to help us understand that all of us, all of us have unique positions. Uh, all of us have unique um, relationships to privilege and power. Sometimes those identities will bring us privilege in one context at the same time as creating the conditions for oppression in other ones. I like to think of this as a kind of kaleidoscope. And we, we all have different perspectives on how we can relate to power and privilege and how we can challenge it if we're willing to, how we can challenge it if we work together. So I want you to take a moment and consider your own kaleidoscope of social location and how it informs your answers to the following questions. I'm gonna put this in the chat pod as well, but allow me to just read them aloud at first. You are thinking first, and then I will invite you, just as we did in the story, to share with those in your household, as well as those of you who are in the hall, you can turn to one another and have a brief conversation. The questions I ask of you, 
about labor. And Karen actually mentioned a few of them, some good ones during our uh, centering, during our meditation. Why do you or did you labor? Why do you or did you labor? Why do you or did you continue to labor? Why do you or did you continue to labor? What does a life of leisure look like for you? What does a life of leisure look like for you? And what barriers exist for you to that life of leisure? What barriers exist for you to that life of leisure? Take about one minute to think about your answers to those questions. And now whenever you're ready, go ahead and turn to a partner in the hall or wherever you are joining the service. If you're here with us online, you can type some of your answers in the chat pod. Let's talk. Just another 30 seconds or so. And wrap up your thoughts. So yeah, I see inside of the chat pod that some of the times we're laboring because we, we want to make sure that we meet our own goals. We want to make sure that we still have housing. We uh, are worried about how much money things will cost. We, we needed to make sure that we were doing something that seemed to bring value to our lives. And that's rough. That's rough because what more value can we have to our lives than being in community with one another and fighting to make sure that we can all get free? I want you to turn to one another. This is metaphorically, you've already been turning to one another quite a bit, but I want you to turn 
to one another when you are tempted to labor beyond what is necessary. We all know that there is some labor that simply must get done. Someone has to pick the fruit. Someone has to make sure that the food is prepared. People need to care for the children and help them learn. I'm at work right now. And while I have been able to construct a life around my calling, as Karen said, there are tasks that come with this position. There are tasks that come with wearing the mantle of ministry that do not always bring me joy. And so while we cannot always make sure that we are getting entirely towards a land that has no labor, we cannot always make sure that we have no worries and we are living carefree. We can move closer to that reality. We can move closer to a way of holding one another in community that supports the labor that must be done when we want to do it and also allows for copious rest when we do not. I want you to come live in a world that centers joy and rest rather than labor. And I want you to live in a world beyond the imaginings of our president that does not keep us stuck in the middle, but would have all of us thrive. Please, beloveds, help one another remove your barriers to the life of leisure that you have imagined for yourselves, that you have imagined for your families, and by extension, have imagined for all of us. I know, and you know, that a world so bold is possible. Come, let us build it together. Thank you so much, Greg, for stimulating our thoughts and our dialogue together. After some music, we'll have community sharing time when you can write into the chat or speak into the microphone here in the hall about what resonated with you in this platform. In this time between, you might prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at WES that the platform brings to mind. As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let us experience the beauty of the musical response.
I've been teleworking for the past two and a half years, and I've had a flexible enough work schedule to volunteer with mutual aid, delivering groceries to neighbors in need. So I do try to flatten the social inequities in a small way. Folks, want to speak, step to the mic? If you want to, please, you can take off your mask at the microphone. If you would begin with your name and your pronouns. Hi, my name is Peter Bishop. Uh, he, his, him. So I have a major uh, uh, issue with this talk, and especially with zeroing in on labor as be something that's bad, okay? And in particular, claiming that deed, not creed, suggests that we should be laboring all the time. However, the, part of the purpose of talks like this is to cause people to think, and so I find that it has caused me to think. And so that way, it's good. So let me go in and talk a little bit more about the problem I have with the main point. The problem I have with the main point is that um, there are problems in the world, and frankly, we as people feel the need to be working on these problems. Our society is set up into the nonprofits and the for-profits, and when you are more of an entrepreneur in either of those areas, uh, you are not then working for someone else. And so you start getting to more a closer ideal as to what our speaker is talking about, it seems to me. But you're still out there trying to get something done to solve a problem in the world, okay? And I think this is very important for us. This gives our life meaning and uh, uh, and it makes us feel really good when we can actually solve some problems. Now, one of the problems was when he talks about Joe Biden, one of the problems that Joe Biden is dealing with is that since the 50s and since the union, since, since FDR created really good support for labor uh, as an institution, that that support for labor has been crushed to a large degree. So that, and that is a big problem. And that has left us in a situation that is not far different from where we were before the Industrial Revolution. Because before the Industrial Revolution, the problem of getting food, getting housing, there were not that many sewers, uh, all kinds of problems existed. And in order to deal with these problems, since we had no machines, we needed to have people doing lots and lots of labor in order to just clean our houses and, and just do ordinary things. And so this is broken, especially in England, it was more in the way there were some indentured people in England, but a lot of them were just uh, part of uh, the lower classes who then had these more menial jobs, and then others had less menial jobs. Yeah, so I, I need to be ending. I need to be ending. I need to be ending. But, and so that has, the one point I wanted to make is that we've come back to that to a remarkable degree because we've allowed the people at the very top to just crush labor. And that is bad. Okay, thank you. Well, hello again. Uh, Jeff Newhall here again. Um, as uh, Wes's resident railway enthusiast, 
I wanted, I noted that in the song, The Big Rock Candy Mountain, there were several references made, which probably don't resonate to a 21st century audience. Uh, the use of the word jungle, for example, would refer to any assembled uh, camp of hobos along a rail line, like a jungle. It was often predatory, predatory in nature. Uh, the poet Carl Sandburg rode the rails as a young man, as a hobo, and wrote of his experiences, quote, one night a man put his hand upon me in a way that I did not like, unquote. Uh, it did mention riding on boxcars. You really want to be in boxcars, an anti-boxcar, shielded from the elements, though there were different uh, ways of catching rides on freight trains. One was to ride what's known as the blind, or the blinds, in which you would occupy the space between freight cars. And kind of risky, especially in inclement weather, or if the train took water on the fly, you could die of exposure. Another way would be to, what's, to do what's known as riding the rods, or finding a space on the steel underframe of a freight car, as back in those days they were mostly made out of wood. And that had its own risks. Not only could you fall off, but you had to make sure to cover your face to protect against any uh, rocks or, or dust or dirt that would, be, that would come up uh, as the train sped along. About the worst possible place to ride would be an empty refrigerator car. In those days, the um, the produce or the meat that they carried was cooled through uh, inserting large blocks of ice through uh, patches in the roof. And the way you knew that the car, the refrigerator car was empty is that the hatches would be propped up. And it might be tempting to do that, but uh, empty freight cars in motion tend to rattle and roll, and if those hatches closed um, because of that and someone was inside, that person would end up suffocating. Uh, they mentioned railroad bulls. A bull is a railroad policeman, and they had a well-deserved reputation for brutality uh, and inflicting grievous and unnecessary injury on hobos and anybody else who chose to ride the rails, uh, usually with an axe handle or a lead pipe or a blackjack or a sap. Um, for years, the town of Brent, Iowa, had a weekend festival of hobos, and it might inspire some people to try that, try riding a freight train. I wouldn't recommend it. It's a good way to end up dead, trying to board a train in motion. What's really interesting, Karen, is that if you look up hobo symbology and hobo graffiti, there was an unwritten language of symbols that hobos would leave in the towns that they passed through, indicating which places to avoid, where you might get a handout. Uh, it was thought that women who uh, had pet cats were susceptible to offers of handouts. So, you know, um, it's kind of interesting. You can look it up online. I didn't mean to take up this much time. Thank you. Abby Dakin, she, her, um, continuing the parade of usual commenters. I hope some of the rest of you will come up sometimes. Uh, so I've often thought, both in my own life and as I watched my kids grow up, how much easier it would be if the labor that they did, that we did, clearly and immediately benefited our ability to eat. Because it's become this abstract thing you know, in my life as in the lives of most people that while I do work to make money to pay the bills, it's not the same as planting and harvesting where I work and then I 
eat what I worked on. Uh, I, a life of leisure is not attractive to me because I associate it with meaninglessness, as one of the online commenters said. Though I was recently reminded by Facebook of something from a year ago where I realized that for many years coming here to West, we've, I've heard the message that, um, that contentment in life comes through meaning. And I suddenly had this thought that, okay, well, I changed careers to do something that was meaningful. And I spend a lot of time on that. And I'm raising children. And I'm part of an intentional community where I live. And I'm part of this community. In fact, I'm on the board this year. And um, that perhaps what I need in my life is not more meaning. Perhaps actually I need more fun. So in my mind, uh, it works well to think of it as a matter of balance. You know, our, our hunter-gatherer forebears um, actually spent less time in labor than we do, in my understanding from the sociologists. So I, I feel that um, it's, it's an out-of-balance, and maybe because of this disconnection between immediate labor and the things we need to live, and to your point, Peter, I'm not going to go into it. I feel like um, wealth and income inequality, which the labor unions helped, support for labor helped uh, retard that disparity, but I feel like that's the underlying disparity that's problematic. Thanks, Abby. So I'm going to return. We have a few additional comments in the chat. Um, Barb Nathan, Sue Smith, sorry, says, I have been retired for eight years and cannot imagine what a life of leisure looks like. This is not a boast, but a challenge to be overcome. So I think much in keeping with Abby's last comments. And Maceo adds, here in DC, it's so hard for people to separate themselves from their labor. It's so much of their identity. There is so much work to do. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Gregg, for the challenge. Michael Dinian adds, for those interested, technology is very likely to reduce opportunities for work. I refer you to an article by Yuval Noah Harari, and there's a link in the chat, you can check that out later. Again, the author of the article is Yuval Noah Harari. And Emily Newman adds, I once was asked what I would do if I didn't need to work, and I said I'd serve others and share my wealth. The person then asked, what if no one needed to work, so no one needed help? And I couldn't fathom it, which kind of scared me. So thank you all for those who shared your perspectives this morning um, via your commentary. And I will share my thoughts, which are words from Yvette Dion, who is executive director executive editor, excuse me, of Yes Media. And she says, capitalism teaches us that we are worthy only when we're productive. It pushes us to rise and grind, to monetize our lives as much as humanly possible. But we all deserve better. We deserve to rest, complete in the knowledge that we are worthy simply for being alive. We deserve to have our basic needs met, without sacrificing our health and well-being. 
Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, the fund we're sharing half of the offering with is family and friends of incarcerated people. FFOIP operates solely to promote charity, literacy, public safety, and to avoid intergenerational incarceration. Its primary mission is to foster community support that effectively meets the needs of DC's at-risk children and families of those incarcerated by engaging them in social, cultural, and youth development activities through various projects, programs, and events. They believe in the concept that it takes a village to raise a child. Let's all take a moment to prepare for the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, we offer several options. If you're someone who gives by text, the number for that is 202-335-1885, as you can see on the slide. Another option is to go online to the donate button on Wes's website, ethicalsociety.org. You can place cash or a check in the basket at the back of the hall on your way out, and you can always send a check by mail. Thank you for your generosity. We will now receive your gifts and the gift of music. so much to the many people who helped create this morning's time together, including staff members Casey Slack and Dara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Maceo Thomas, and Tom Hutton. Interim music coordinator Leah Morris and guest musicians Dr. Josh Turknett, Eric Bibb, Brian Kenny and Elena Hemingway, Nathan Moore, and upcoming Pat Wichter and Get Higher Choir. 
Our tech team members, John Leica, Denise Howell, and John Pfeiffer, slide artists, John and Abby Dakin, in-person greeters, Roberta Geyer and Susan Runner, and Zoom usher, Judy Myers, and our virtual coffee hour host, Kristen Hunter. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for a social hour in person or on the foyer and on the patio, or for that virtual coffee hour via Zoom. Thanks also to those who are leading and supporting our work in the weeks to come. You can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails or on the calendar page of Wes's website, ethicalsociety.org. A reminder that registration is open for Wes's Sunday Ethical Education for Kids or SEEK program. We're recruiting volunteers for teaching teams and the overall SEEK guidance team. You do not need to be a parent to volunteer, and this is really a great way to get involved in the community. If you want to play more, more of a role in the village that helps raise Wes's young people, please email Dara at andaram at ethicalsociety.org. The West course will rehearse this week on Wednesday from 7.30 to 9 here in the main hall as we prepare to provide the music for opening Sunday on September 18th. The course is truly open to everyone, so please get in touch with Perry Bider if you have questions or want more details. We're also going to try something new, pre-platform sessions to introduce folks to the song of the month, which for September will be Circle Round by Mom Muse. If this sounds to you like a fun way to dip your toes in the water of singing at West, please let Perry know. He can do this on September 4th, 11th, or both, but Perry won't want to show up early if he's going to be the only one here, since he knows the song already. So you can listen, um, there are links in the email, and you can email Perry Bider if you have more questions and to indicate your interest in an early arrival singing time. Next week, our platform speaker will be West Senior Leader Casey Slack, and to attend platform in person, please RSVP at tiny.cc slash West, sorry, excuse me, tiny.cc slash platform reservation. And as those in the hall know, you need to bring your vaccination card or a photo of it. Or you can tune in by Zoom as we continue our hybrid platforms for the foreseeable future. For now, let me thank you all for being part of the platform today and invite you to join in our closing song, Love is the Water, and Remember the Motions. You say your heart's been turned to stone. You say you want to be left alone. You say love only means you weep and moan. Well, let me tell you something that you know in your bones. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the power that won't be stopped. Love is the water that wears down the rock. You say your soul's like a dry riverbed Stopped waiting for the water long ago You said you better pray all night For the rain instead Love comes like a tidal wave over your head Love is the water that wears down the rock 
You say waiting for love takes too long. Does a child mind weakens a strong will? You may be right, but you may be wrong. Cause love can make a mountain come tumbling down. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the power that won't be stopped. <laughs> a few brief reminders before we leave. If you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. To reach virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, inspiring and being inspired to ethical living in our quest for a better world. Again, thank you for joining in today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. <laughs>